Welcome back to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. This podcast is all about nurturing and developing seven key skills that will just make you happier, live a life full of meaning and purpose and doing work you love. And those skills are adaptability, empathy, critical thinking, integrity, being proactive, being optimistic and being resilient. And you can read more about these skills in my book, Seven Skills for the Future, out now on Amazon, published by Pearson Business. So in this episode, I am so delighted to be able to talk to Louise Chester, who is the founder and managing director of Mindfulness at Work. And I first met Louise at a business breakfast networking event run by Editorial Intelligence. Every six weeks, they have an early breakfast and they have great speakers who just talk for about five or 10 minutes on on a subject, which we then end up discussing and and, and talking about when we are meeting other people at the event. And Louise does incredible work with mindfulness, working with major companies all over the world. And she herself has a very impressive background. She worked for years and years in the corporate sector with banks as a leading director and leading positions. And she says that mindfulness, you know, she could not have done the kind of hours she worked and the kind of pressure she was under, she could not have done any of it without mindfulness practice. So this is what she now does full-time with companies. And I thought it would be great to have her on the podcast to talk to us more about her work and especially about how these skills link in with resilience. So I am delighted to be welcoming Louise Chester to our podcast today. Louise is founder and managing director of Mindfulness at Work, and she specializes in working with people to access fantastic and effective mindfulness training. So I'm really interested to talk to you today, Louise, and thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So could you maybe just start by telling our listeners a bit more about you and about how you came to be doing this amazing work? I used to work in the city as an investment analyst. And about 25 years ago, I had the incredible good fortune of meeting somebody who used mindfulness practices to train their mind to be more effective, focused, clear-minded, relaxed. And the contrast between their life and mine was, was quite stark. I was out on a trading floor feeling like I was drinking from the fire hose in terms of the information I was having to process and the the sort of high stakes decisions I was having to make. And so I asked her to teach me the practices that she was using. Within a couple of weeks, I started to notice that I just felt different, felt happier, more relaxed. And this started to really impact positively on my work and on my relationships, both with my colleagues and clients and also with family and friends. Within six months, that was really brought to bear in terms of performance when I was voted number one Excel rated in, in my sector globally and headhunted to be the youngest director ever at UBS. And I went on to have a very privileged and very senior career in the city at a very young age. So from the age of sort of 27 to 35. So I ended up, my last role was as first as head of research and then global head of telecoms and media at Resner RCM. So one of the world's leading fund managers. And I was responsible for the asset allocation on about $15 billion of assets. 
And there's absolutely no way that I would have been able to not only just attain those positions, but also sustain them and keep balance in my life if it hadn't been for this daily mindfulness practice that I'd established. So I retired when I was 35 and set up a not-for-profit retreat centre at my home in Kent as a way of kind of giving back and started to more formally share this mind training with others you know, who came for courses or individual retreats. And then 10 years ago, that I realised that the science had really caught up with the experience that not only I had had, this sort of mental upgrade that this mind training, this, this mental fitness had enabled, but in the hundreds of others of people that I'd taught over the years. And I decided to set up Mindfulness at Work. So this was yeah, over 10 years ago now. So nobody had really heard of mindfulness. It wasn't flavor of the month at all. But I, but I knew that enough science was coming through to show that if you do these practices, just as you can get physically fit by going to the gym and doing certain exercises, you can get mentally fit. And that actually um, fMRI scans and encephalographs were really starting to show that, that, that this happened quite quickly. I knew I could start to have sort of left brain conversations with heads of HR and global heads of learning um, and really bring this in in a much more formal and practical way into the workplace. So that's what I did. And uh, 250 big corporate clients later and probably over 150,000 people having experienced the practices and the training. It's something that still continues to bring me great joy every day it, oh. it, it, it really doesn't feel like work yeah yeah and the clients are all just amazing the most incredible organizations huge global organizations we're making massive impact from leaders I work one-on-one with leaders and boards of banks and very impactful organizations and design programs I mean, the program I'm doing at the moment is for 35,000 senior managers in one global company wow <laughs> it's great stuff yeah it's, it's just fantastic just listening listening to all of this so I mean mindfulness is a big topic now it's, as you were saying it's kind of really become quite a trend but could you tell our listeners your description of what mindfulness is because we hear a lot of definitions of it but how would you describe what mindfulness actually is in practice it's fascinating because i think the way i describe it has evolved over time and it, it is almost difficult to put into words something that is beyond words i think the best way i think to describe it is is that ability to become present with yourself and and with others be present in your own life and to be able to choose where you you place your attention to have a a clear mind so that you are very aware of yourself and others and I think the bit that sort of is in addition to that just sort of training the mind to pay attention I think there's a there's a quality to that which is one of kindness one of compassion to yourself and others so I would say it's a, a kind presence with yourself and others and how, how do we best do that? If you were explaining to our listeners how to introduce mindfulness into their lives, what are some ways that they could they can do that? So I think one of the first things to do is recognise that between stimulus and response, there is a space. So between life coming at us and our reaction to it, there is a space as our mind processes the data. And in that space is our opportunity to choose. You know, my belief is, is that when we are present in that space and realize that we can choose our behavior, our response in that moment, most of us are inclined to want to 
choose the most value creating response. And not only for ourselves, but actually I think we're very, you know, we are pro-social creatures and we want to do something that um, also is, is a benefit to others. What mindfulness training does, formal practices, just as, you know, going to the gym and doing formal fitness training, it, it enables us to have that mental fitness to inhabit that space and realize that in every moment the choices are there. There's two ways of, of really building that fitness. One is by choosing to take some time out and practicing it. That can be done by just choosing something to place our attention on, something to get present with. It could be, you know, we, sit, we, we decide to sit in a, a chair or lie down and choose to be present with our breath for 10 minutes, choosing to observe what it feels like in our body as we breathe in and out and not wishing anything to be different, not judging it, just becoming aware. But there are many, many other ways that we can do this as, as well. A lot of people ask me, well, how do I do my practice first thing in the morning because I have young children? So I say to them, well, make them the focus of, of your attention. Give them your full presence for 10 minutes. Yes. People say, I run. And I say, OK, when you go for your run, just run. Every time you notice your thoughts straying to the meeting you're having for later on in the day or the, the shopping that you forgot to do or whatever it is, bring your attention back again and again to what it feels like as you're running. Um, so there are many, many ways, you know, if you're you know, listening to some music, just listen to the music. But it's about training ourselves to be present in our own lives, noticing when, our, when we wander off. I think one of the reasons why we are currently the most dominant species on this planet, debatable how long that, that will continue, is because of memory and imagination. And it's very, very easy for our mind. You know, we are hardwired for the negative. We're hardwired to, to, to look out for things that could cause us danger. So we spend our life revisiting, you know, events in the past, trying to work out how we could do them better or running scenarios into the future, often scenarios that Hollywood script writers <laughs> couldn't even make up. And unfortunately, our body has no idea that that these are just in our mind. And we live in those neighborhoods that we create uh, with our memory and imagination, and it causes great toll on our bodies. And if, really, there are many different ways that we can be mindful, and we can train it formally and informally. We can choose to take uh, small pockets of time out during our day. We're waiting for the lift. We're waiting for the tube. Just using those as, as triggers to just get present with ourselves. And the more we practice this, the easier it becomes to bring that mental fitness into every area of our life. It sounds like we have lots of opportunities, actually, in our everyday to be mindful if we look for those opportunities. Well, I suppose every moment that we're not asleep, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, what would you say is the impact of smartphones and technology? Because those have only been around for the last 10 years. I mean, smartphones, uh, what impact do they have on our ability to be mindful well, you know, we live in an attention economy. The value of Silicon Valley is predicated on the ability of these devices and, and apps to hijack our attention. We're working against some very clever technology that understands how our, how our minds work. I think it has made it a lot more difficult for people to manage their own minds and manage their attention. Dopamine is a very addictive drug. And as we know from 
what many designers of apps and devices have have now shared, whether it's likes on Facebook or whatever, they've been specifically designed to make us addicted to the feedback we get and the interaction that we get. It's very similar to the the slot machines in Las Vegas, same kind of uh, hit that we get. And I, I, I think it has made things a lot more difficult. And the, the great thing that we have is awareness. I mean, you know, we weren't really aware of this and we are now. Awareness is the first step for everything. And that's really what, the, what, what mindfulness trains is that ability to be aware and present in our own lives. And, and I think, you know, there are ways that we can become, I'm very aware of how many times I pick up my phone during the day and which apps I'm using and how much time I'm spending on social media, because I now have that as, a, as something that I can check in and measure on my phone, get a, a daily and weekly update on. And I think that awareness is very helpful. And this is really a lot of the, the work that we do in organizations is helping people to wrestle their attention back from often in a working culture that has evolved that is really detrimental to deep focus and, and, and clarity of mind that's needed to, to, to do our best work. We look at how as individuals and whole organizations, as well as teams, we can start to use technology in the most positive way and uh, have the awareness that uh, certain aspects of it um, are going to erode our, our ability to be able to for, perform to our full potential. And you were talking at the beginning of the interview about the sheer numbers of people that you're helping in, in companies. So, I mean, first of all, there is a, a, a much stronger awareness now, I think, on behalf of companies who recognise that this is really, really valuable. What other things have you noticed about some of the companies that you work with? Could you give us some examples of your work and, and, and how people respond to what you're doing? Absolutely. So first of all, our book, The Mind of the Leader, was published by Harvard Business Press last year. And what was fascinating is, is when we went out to interview senior leaders around the world for the book, many of whom were clients, um, and but many of whom also weren't. So we did in-depth interviews with over 250 senior leaders across, the, across different you know, organizations. And what we found was that those leaders exhibited three traits. First of all, they were very mindful. They were very present and they understood how important it was to manage their attention and to stay focused and be present with themselves and also very present with others, no matter the challenges. So Don Barton, who was the managing partner of McKinsey, he has back-to-back meetings every day. He very rarely is in the same city or bed every every night uh, when he travels. He has uh, two or three people who travel with him on the plane so that they can meet with him while he's flying. He used to carve out times for himself to make sure that he looked after himself, so to, to stay resilient, to be able to um, have that downtime for himself, but also to take short mindfulness practices between between meetings from sort of one to five minutes to be able to maintain presence. Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott, talked to us very much about how uh, Marriott and their view is, is that if you can be a compassionate organisation, you look after your employees, the employees look after the guests and the business looks after itself. So mindful, being present, being compassionate and the Marriott family were very much wanting to be of service, not only to the guests, but also to the employees. And they're one of the biggest employers in the world, actually. Interestingly, even though most of their employees maybe have only up to a high school education, they have one of the highest engagement 
scores of any organisation that we've ever worked with. Accenture is another global client of ours. They understand very much that managing attention is probably the best determinant of business success. And so we've been working with them a long time on on that. But um, they've now really got a very clear understanding of how important it is for um, businesses to be uh, people-centric. And they have a global program called Truly Human, which really encourages people to be themselves and bring their whole self to work. And uh, they've created a very kind of diverse and inclusive culture. And we are part of that that Truly Human program. So I think what we're really seeing is is that organisations want to be much more people-centric. The leaders understand that they are there to serve and that that builds trust and and followership. And that, in fact, compassion is the secret source. And that to we do a lot of enabling resiliency, uh, mental and uh, emotional, physical resiliency in organisations. And it starts, you know, it starts with our mind. We need to lead ourselves and lead and make good decisions and look after ourselves effectively. And that enables us then to be of service to others. So th- this is what we're finding in organisations: those that want to be resilient sustainable organizations for the long term they're looking at their most valuable resources which are their people and wanting to make sure that they are engaged that they are purposeful that they want to stay within the organization and they also are the kind of organization that attracts talent as well and and looks after that talent so that that, so that people can really feel that that the work that they're doing is enabling them to truly flourish just listening to you describing your work, the two that leap out at me are um, empathy and resilience from what you've been saying. Yeah, it's really interesting. We don't use so much the word empathy as compassion because I think empathy can be quite depleting if you are just suffering alongside the person. Compassion, which is that ability to uh, recognise suffering in yourself and others and then having an intention to want to alleviate it is actually a very nourishing, I mean, science has borne this out. There's more science, I think, on good science on on compassion and self-compassion than there is even on mindfulness. So it it is actually very nourishing to to take a compassionate act, whether it's for yourself or others. I feel that compassion and self-compassion is actually the sort of bedrock for resilience. It's very difficult to be present in your own life or that of somebody else's if there is suffering and you don't actually have the resources to alleviate that suffering or you, you don't feel fully resourced. I think presence is a is a courageous act. The reason I think many people are distracted is because it's very painful to realise what your life is like in that moment. And if you don't feel you can do anything about it, then why look at it? So I think compassion or empathy and resilience go hand in hand. And I think if if we want to be anti-fragile, if we want to become stronger through challenges of life, just as in nature we see, you know, resilient species, they are ones that have been challenged and have grown stronger. And I think that that's what we need to do as individuals and, and whole organisations. Louise, thank you so much. This has just been such a wonderful, wonderful interview. All your insights and some of the examples that you give are so powerful. And I think the, the whole idea that we can actually practice mindfulness at any time with anything that we're doing and just bring that into our daily lives is makes it somehow easier to access. If, if our listeners want to find out more about you uh, and your work and, and your book, 
and your retreat. Where can they come to? Our website is mindfulnessatwork.com and I am on LinkedIn at Louise Cox Chester. And the global organisation that I'm a part of, which published the book, The Mind of the Leader, is Potential Project, the potentialproject.com. Thank you so much. And all of these links will also be in the show notes, so you'll be able to access them there as well. Thank you so much, Louise, for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I really look forward to to hearing more and learning more about your work uh, in the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the seven skills for the future podcast there are all sorts of things you can do to boost each of the seven skills if you want more ideas you can buy the book seven skills for the future you can also go online to our website unimenta and join as a member and you'll be able to access more resources ideas and free downloads if you have a question you want to ask on these podcasts get in touch through instagram at seven skills for the future or on Twitter and Facebook at Unimenta. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice.